Proctor and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing type functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August of 2016. The first day features a single track of presentations, followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is a new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. Alexa Conference is taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit elixirconf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be composed of two main blocks with a cap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erlang, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Full Stack Fest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erlang User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th, and their training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Payton-Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erlang co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verning, as well as the rest of the speaker lineup, which can be found up on their website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson Inkista. Standard tickets will be available until September 8th, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. StrainZoop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-ling.org. PWLConf 2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference co-located with the pre-conference events at StrangeLoop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a StrangeLoop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st, 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to try to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. ScalaWave is coming up on the 14th and 15th of October in Gdansk, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, ScalaWave is created to build the network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter for updates. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will be taking place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects in other languages will be present as well. Regular tickets are still available for €100. The call for proposals is already open and closes Sunday the 4th of September. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Code Message is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit CodeMesh.io to submit your talks, register, sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain, for sessions and workshops worked into a day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. 
Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Ms. Proctor, and this week with us we have Yen Trey. Yen, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. So, I guess I've been programming professionally for just over 10 years now, and most of the time I've been working in gaming for a company called Gamesys over here in London. So for the last, I guess the best part of the last seven years, I've been doing mostly backend work, building backend systems for social games. And at the peak, we have around a million daily active users in our game. So even though we are nowhere near as successful and the popular as some of the more popular games you might have heard of, like Clash of Clans or Pokemon Go, but there's still quite a lot of interesting sort of technical challenges and scalability challenges for even reasonably popular games like the ones that we built. So I got into, I guess, functional programming back around 2010. At the time, I was uh, just started using Membase, and that's when I discovered, oh, this thing was written in Erlang. What's this thing called Erlang? And I spent a bit of time looking into that, and whilst so exploring that space, I also discovered F-sharp. A lot of the things I built at Gamesys was built on top of the .NET stack, using a mixture of C-sharp and F-sharp. And in my spare time, I spend quite a lot of my time just looking at different languages and what sort of options uh, I have available to me. And one of the things I found is that whilst I'm learning different languages and paradigms, especially paradigms, it has really helped expand my mind and help me think about problems in different light. And one of the nice things I had with my job at Gamesys was that I had a lot of freedom to explore and to try out different things. So along the way, we adopted F-sharp very heavily in the team. And at the same time, we also did some work with Erlang as well. And we also did quite a bit of experimentation with different databases. And we used Amazon Web Services very heavily, as well as Google App Engine. And we also did quite a bit of work with graph databases and using Neo4j to help us model MNO RPG game and how all the different things in the game are linked together to help us automate process of balancing the game whenever we make changes to some of the pricing or rarity of items, etc., etc. And since then, I've moved on. And nowadays, I'm working for a social media startup in London called the Yabble. And we've soft-launched in the UK the last since um, February, and we're just about to go into Europe. And unfortunately, nowadays, I'm not doing any functional programming anymore, I'm working full-time in Node, which is interesting, <laughs> to say the least. But at the same time, we also, because Node.js is very well supported on Amazon Lambda, so we've had lots of experience going to this really new paradigm of having serverless architectures. And in my spare time, I also spent a bit of time with Rust, with Go, Elm, Haskell, a bit of Scala as well. So I'm just all around very interested in the programming and exploring new ideas. And it was that first Erlang and F-sharp experience, I think, that caught my attention with your stuff on Twitter and on your blog and just some of the stuff around there because of my interest in Erlang, you cropped up, but I also had .NET and kind of had some interest in F-Sharp. And you were in that London functional group community. And I want to say I've seen interactions online with you and Andrea Magnorski and some of the other people in the UK around F-Sharp and functional programming. And so you're on the radar. So I wanted to get you on to kind of talk about some of that, just because it's another interesting perspective of what you've done. Because I've seen articles where you compare Microsoft Orleans to the Erlang and their different actor models versus the Aka.net and some of that stuff. So having seen you play with some of these languages, I wanted to get you on and talk about some of what you sound. So it sounded like you said your first exposure was digging into Erlang, trying to understand what this is via Couchbase. What was that journey like when you were looking in? Was this just something you were using Couchbase and you were just trying to figure out how they did what they did and Erlang came up? Or was there some other story around what prompted into that look for Couchbase and Erlang? That was before it became Couchbase. At the time, it was called the Membase and it was put together by the guys behind the Memcached. 
but they also added auto uh, cluster configuration so that when you add a new node, the cluster would uh, figure out between themselves which virtual bucket points to which physical machine so that you don't have to go through this process that you have to do manually with uh, Mancache-D. And just looking at some of the numbers in terms of how scalable those systems are, I was quite amazed at what you can do with uh, really, you know, really pretty low-end machines. And so that prompted my sort of journey into looking at the Erlang. And I had to be honest, Erlang doesn't have the most friendly syntax. So at first, it's a bit of a um, struggle trying to understand what else is going on, just basic things uh, and trying to get to grips with um, some of the syntactic quirks. But once you get past that, the semantics of uh, programming with actor models is just really powerful and also very intuitive. And the Erlang runtime is something that you can easily you can you can easily fall in love with. Um, nowadays, I've I've done quite a lot of work with uh, Node.js, and in terms of in comparison to what you get with Erlang, the the robustness, the high availability, it's just nine day. There's just no comparison. And as for F sharp, it's also something that around the time when I was looking at Erlang, I was trying to get a better understanding of what is functional programming. So around that time, I just randomly stumbled onto some articles. I think it might have been by uh, Thomas Petrachek on the F sharp and later on read his book, Real World Programming with F sharp. And because we're working with the .NET stack already, doing a lot of work with C sharp. So F sharp seems like a reasonable choice to go forward with. And about a year after that, when I first started looking at F sharp and Erlang, piece of work came up in my day job and looking at the requirements. So we're trying to basically build a rule engine for some of our social slots games and we wanted to build it from scratch because the existing driver solution just wasn't a quite, well, the, the, the team just looking after that solution just couldn't move as fast as we would like to. We wanted to push our new games every two weeks and as well as on top of that, new feature to our core platform as well. We couldn't get the agility that we're looking for, so we decided to build our own platform. So looking at the requirements, I thought the functional programming seems like a really good fit here, and I spoke to my manager, my boss, and they were really open for me to just try different things. And I spent about a week and a half, maybe, and I ended up with something from scratch with an engine as well as one of the games implemented on top of the engine that did everything the existing solutions was able to do and more. And so from then on, we proved that, okay, we can make this work and we can do this very quickly and very productively. And since then, I think we now got over 150 games implemented on top of our F-Sharp game engine. And the important thing, I guess one of the things to also mention here is that compared to the existing driver solution, which was looked after by a whole team of driver developers, this on the F-Sharp engine, we were able to get easily an order of magnitude increase in productivity. So the amount of work that was basically done by a team of Java developers is now taken care of by one junior developer who came out of university, joined us with no previous F-sharp experience, but have done a bit of high school at university. And I was able to teach him basic syntax, uh, F-sharp syntax, and he was able to transfer his functional programming knowledge and experience in high school onto F-sharp and within the first week of joining the team, produce a new game on his own. And I think the week after that, we managed to push it into production. And because how much more productive we were able to do with the new F-sharp solution, we end up doing more and more F-sharp. And towards the end of my time at the GameSys, we were using F-sharp for a lot of things besides just the core game engine. We use F-sharp to implement some genetic algorithms for one of the MMORPGs games we did. We built whereby you have monsters they can catch with traps and they each have stats points. And before it used to be that our game designers will try to work out based on a set of formulas, try out all kinds of different numbers and until they get some catch rate that's close to what they're looking for. And obviously that's really manual and laborious. So we decided to automate all of that and roll a bunch of genetic algorithms that will work it out for them. And with FSHAR, we also build a lot of tooling on top of what we get with the AWS DK for .NET, for Amazon DynamoDB, for example, it's almost infinitely scalable. You just tell Amazon how much read and write throughput you require. Amazon will then go ahead and reserve enough capacity to meet your throughput requirements. And you get charged based on how much resources that Amazon has to allocate. But for doing any sort of queries or table scans, you have to write all these uh, really clunky request properties here and there. And there's no easy way for you to express your query. So because we started with DB very heavily, I ended up writing a bunch of DSLs so that you get a SQL-like syntax for query done with DB with. 
And we also use uh, S3 and other services very heavily. So with Azure 4, you've got this feature called a type provider, which is basically a mechanism for giving you type access to some external data source so that you don't have to do what you would normally do. So if you try to access some data in CSV, you model the data structure first, create a type that represent them, and then do some data marshalling, read it from I.O., disk or from the internet somewhere and marshal the data into your DTO types and then you can start doing some useful things with them. With Type Provider, there's a mechanism whereby even whilst you're still developing, you can say point create Type Provider that maps to some data structure externally and let Type Provider work out based on the data you get, automatically generate the types for you so that you can get your tenor sense over the data you're looking for. So because we use S3 very often and uh, my workflow was also not very good because I have to open up a different tool, search and find the file I'm looking for, download it, and then write some code to read it, pass it, and then do something else with the data once I've sort of passed it out. So instead, I would like to just spend more time within my IDE and with Type Provider, I write something that essentially gave me type so intelligence over my S3 buckets and objects. And then with Erlang, we also had a bit of work uh, where we wanted to build um, essentially a push notification system for our games running on the web using a Flash as well as the iOS and iPad clients. And this, again, something that Erlang is really well suited for. So that was our first, uh, I guess, first real adventure into using Erlang. We learned quite a few things about running with Erlang in production in that, in that environment. And one of the things um, I found was that while well, Erlang is great, but a lot of the tools that came with Erlang out of the box, like um, distributed ODP, for instance, it was great. We got fixed topology, but in the cloud environment where all the servers are ephemeral, they come and go all the time. You kind of have to come up with your own mechanisms for managing that and having some kind of global registry, and that's something that people tend to end up implementing often. Even though you've got Gplog and a bunch of other libraries, none of them really seem to work particularly well. And another thing that I find often with Erlang is that even some of the most popular libraries are very poorly documented. So around this time, I was looking at what else is there, and Orleans was one of the things that sort of popped up. A while back, I heard about this thing that Microsoft Extreme Programming Group has been working on, and they were using in the Halo. But the details were very thin on the ground and, and there was no GoPro license. But it was around that time that they actually started to open up Orleans and making it available for other people to, to play with and to go to production with. And the thing about Orleans is that it, it simplifies a lot of the challenges that I mentioned about working with Erlang in a cloud environment. But at the same time, there's also a couple of things about Orleans that I didn't particularly agree with. So, for instance, with Orleans, if you've got this virtual actor model whereby, unlike in Erlang, where all the actors have to be live and running in, on a machine somewhere in memory, the virtual actor model, if actors not being used, it would just get uh, shut down, but its state is stored somewhere based on some persistence plugin that you can, you can implement yourself so that you can, you, you can have the state of your actors being stored in SQL Server or in DynamoDB or whatever data store that you want to use. And the next time that particular actor is being called, so someone else is trying to send a message to this actor, then that actor can be spawned anywhere in your cluster of machines. And the sort of mapping of the process ID to the physical machine is managed by the Orleans runtime for you. So you don't have to sort of implement your own global registry yourself. And also with Erlang is that once your cluster gets big enough, if you don't do any tuning yourself, the overhead of maintaining the cluster itself can start taking up quite a lot of the resources as you have because the clusters themselves have to, well, once you, you send a message from one node to another node, then that they, there's a gossip protocol in place that means that the other node finds out what other nodes are connected to the first node and then they all join to a mesh network. But as you can imagine, as the number of nodes in your cluster grows, the overhead of just maintaining that mesh network is going to grow exponentially. And for that, uh, Orleans also have quite a nice membership system, which basically just offloads that to some external data store and occasionally sort of syncing up things only when the detector nodes have gone down or never partitioned. So the chance of it going down is if the nodes are partitioned at the same time as the, the data store is gone, 
So from what I gathered from Sergey, who supported lead on Orleans, the likelihood of that actually happening in production is very, very small. And most of the time, you can get a cash hit on the virtual actors that you're looking for in memory. So it's quite performant. And from the numbers I can see, they've published for Halo. It's a really impressive system. But that said, the way Orleans inside a virtual actor, the way Orleans handles exception, is that if, uh, so in Erlang, if there's a handle exception, the actor dies, and then you have a supervisor that can bring the Erlang process, the actor back, and with Orleans, those exceptions are just silent. So it's kind of down to you to be disciplined about making sure that all your updates are are idempotent so that you don't leave, and you don't leave behind the uh, dirty rights so that you say as part of one transaction you make some changes but before you make the next change something happened and you had an unhandled exception so the first part of your update would be left around the state so the next time something else is called or if that active state is persisted then you end up with some of those dirty rights and also with Orleans well, I guess it's design choice, a choice that the team has gone with. They have gone with .NET's task-based asynchrony, which is something that with Erlang, one of the things that, that's what made me change the way I think about distributed programming is the message passing-based paradigm, where it promotes failure of thinking a lot more than the, I guess, more traditional RPC-style asynchrony. So when you send a message, uh, there's... You, you always think you always have to think about whether or not you're going to get a reply. If the, the other side is going to receive the message and uh, if they don't receive it, what should I do? And if they do receive it, am I going to get the response back? It makes your programming model more robust and more complicated, but it does expose some of the underlying and inevitable failure modes you can run into in the distributed environment, which I think the task-based uh, asynchrony model kind of hides away from you a bit too much. But that said, I think Orleans is a very interesting technology and certainly with virtual actors makes the programming in that space very easy. And I know from speaking to Jose Berlin, uh, the creator of Elixir, that he's also very interested in the in the sort in the virtual actor model and they're looking into, you know, is there something that we can do in the Erlang world to sort of to mirror similar systems? Yeah, that's um that's what I've got on the F sharp and Erlang and Orleans space. What's the other question? <laughs> it was just about how you, just some of that stuff you found. And I think you did a good rundown. And I think there's a good amount to unpack now. And just part of the Orleans mention was that that one was what stuck out because you actually gave a really good, really long rundown and comparison of the two. So just to unpack a little bit, everything you said, because there was so much in there, I want to take a step back. And you said you started with looking at Erlang and you went into how you got into F-sharp. But what was some of that appeal that when you actually looked at Erlang that and a little bit of F-sharp that said, this is something I want to take more in. What was some of that stuff that appealed to you about Erlang and F-sharp and functional programming in general? Right. So the thing that appealed to me about Erlang is definitely the active model. The way you model a system. I've been a C-sharp program for quite a long time now as well. And even when you speak, listen to some of the really big old guys that they talk about messaging. And if you go back to the original definition of OO, Alan Kay, he actually said that I thought of objects being like biological cells and or individual computers on a network, only able to communicate with messages. And that OOP to me means only messaging, local retention and protection, and hiding of state process and extreme late binding of all things. So if you actually look at the original definition of OO, the closest thing that we have to what Alan Kay described nowadays is probably actually Erlang. And with Erlang, it makes the messaging side of things very explicit. And in the book, Growing Object-Oriented Systems, Guided with Tests by Ned Price and Steve Freeman, they also really stress this point of messaging and making the protocol between your objects be explicit. So where they were describing objects and the methods you have on your classes, for example, those are your messagings. Those are the messages that you are able to send and receive. And the signatures, those defines the protocol that your objects are implementing. And with the actor models and processes that we have in Erlang, what that messages and protocol became something that's much more explicit than it's kind of just what you get with OO. And what I find with F-sharp, 
And functional programming in general is the, at least the big benefit I find is that it moves you towards a higher level of abstraction. And you start thinking more about what it is that you're trying to do rather than the uh, steps of what a computer should do to get there. And that obviously helps you focus more on the problem domain than the sort of solution space where you spend more time thinking about how to model your system to solve the problem that your users have rather than being lured into the nitty-gritty details of the individual steps on what you need to do to get there. And when you're working in the mainstream languages such as Java or C-sharp, you're not only working in OO, but you're also working in the imperative paradigm as well. Where with a mutable state, again, a lot of the big OO guys, they talk about the benefits of mutability. But in mainstream languages such as Java and C-sharp, the defaults are mutable. So it doesn't matter how many functional features you tag on, you are still forcing people to to do actual work in order to to get the space where they can have the immutable state. Uh, whereas with F-sharp, all this, the language defaults are driving you towards those good practices that all practitioners are, are telling you about. And with F-sharp, the language works the same, so you can often solve problems with far less code than you would do, say, in C-sharp. And for that, there's actually a guy in the F-sharp community called Simon Cousins, who did a very interesting case study with something that he worked on. So he was working in the energy sector where they had a big energy contract system where they have a team of, I think, up to eight people spending more than three years trying to implement all the different types of energy contracts that that you can have. And they were still getting anywhere close to finishing. So Simon decided to, hey, I wonder how long can I I implement this in F-Sharm? How long would it take me? And he actually ended up, him and two other guys uh, ended up uh, implementing all the different contracts in F-Sharp in less than a year. So that's Easily, and the, I think the code, uh, the amount, the code size of the code base was about ten percent of what was um, in the C sharp uh, code, um, uh, code base. So again, that goes to show how much productivity you can get by working with in the right paradigm and working with a high level of abstraction. So it sounds like you found a lot of the principles still held true between functional programming and OO. But the FP side helped encourage you to follow those because, as you said, there are a lot of OO proponents who encourage messaging and who encourage value objects or immutable objects. And there's a lot of similar principles about small method size, figure out the reusable components and all that. But it sounds like you had bought into those practices. And then when you saw the functional programming side of Erlang and F-sharp, that it was the alignment of oh, this thing helps you easily do that stuff and lead you down that route instead of having to go out of your way across other languages to get that benefit, right? Yep, that's right. And also with F-sharp and many other functional languages, you also have a more expressive type system that can help you describe your domain more succinctly as well. So since I've been working with F-sharp, any other language that I go to that doesn't have a union type, that's the first thing that I'll miss. Because with union type, that's uh, so in C sharp you have class hierarchies, but with a class hierarchy, your hierarchy essentially is always extensible by subclassing. You don't really have a way to express a constraint that my system can only ever be in these three states, for example, whereas uh, with a union type, that's a part of a dialogue with the compiler that I can now have to, to say, well, if I something that can always be extended, sure, I can use, I can still use a, a class hierarchy, but I don't have a way to say, this is it. These are only the valid states that my systems can be in. And it helps me make illegal states unrepresentable in my domain. And that's something that you probably hear quite often from functional programmers from a static type languages. And with F-sharp, the type system is still fairly limited compared to, say, something like Haskell or Idris. And in terms of actually realizing the dream of uh, making illegal state unrepresentable and eliminating runtime errors altogether, Idris is probably the closest we've got right now. And Edwin Brady was on this one, was on this show a couple of episodes back. And Edwin is, uh, is an amazing guy, very you know, super clever. And uh, the, what he's done with Idris is also super interesting as well. And then with the types and 
the reduced code size that you were talking about. You mentioned also that you were able to take your code base and pull it down to that you now had one junior developer out of college coming in and maintaining your rules engine. What did you find about getting someone who had a little bit of Haskell experience from college, but just getting someone relatively new even, and especially new to your code base, getting them ramped up and to be productive in that turnaround time of a week's worth of work, and then a week later of getting it shipped and into production. What did you find was some of the benefits and catching points for bringing someone into a code base like that and getting them up and productive quickly? One of the things that we try to do in our code base has been try to keep sort of the layers of our abstractions to minimum to what we need. Whereas uh, for a lot of the overall projects I've worked with, I've worked in, and I've seen I've, I've seen other people work, you end up with an explosion of abstractions. And whilst abstractions is very powerful weapons, but it can also do a lot of harm if you abuse it. And for that junior developer, compared to some of the other guys I have in the team, the thing I find is that the difficult part of switching to, say, F-sharp from C-sharp is not the syntax, it's the way of thinking, the way you model systems, the way you abstract things. Those are techniques that require a different way of thinking, the way of different way of looking at a problem. And once you have got that way of thinking in functional programming, the syntax is a very minor hurdle, which is why I was able to have hire someone at university and have him be productive in F-sharp within the first week because he's already had that journey of understanding functional programming and how to model the systems, how to express those ideas in this new paradigm. Well, not new paradigm, but it's new to paradigm to many developers. So to get, this, to get over the syntax hurdle was very straightforward, whereas I have also have other developers who has been programming in the C-sharp for many years. But the thing they struggle with, even though often they, the, the thing that they complain about is, oh, the syntax is different. Where are the curly braces? But the real difficulty that they come up against is how the model systems, how do I abstract things in this different paradigm to what I'm used to? Does that answer your question? I think so. And some of that was just... You mentioned that he had already had some exposure to Haskell, so I didn't know if there were any other just catches or things that he had found besides getting that abstraction layer right that causes people to be able to be productive and what that turnaround time looks like. So you mentioned you have other people who come in from a C-sharp background. They try to get over the difference of syntax, and some of them make that transition easier than others. But what are some of those other things as well that they either stumble on and trying to find the right abstraction or trying to represent the types or whatever it may be. And what are some of those things that you found have clicked when you're actually bringing in coworkers and getting people onboarded into this? Because it sounded like you started with just you and a very few other people who mm-hmm. had this interested and pulled it into the company. And then it grew organically from there with people coming on and doing more and more in it. As someone who's trying to push, say, F-sharp into your company, one of the things that I would say is that you have to take on extra responsibilities in terms of being the go-to person for whenever things goes wrong and trying to help your colleagues uh, through problems. And you also have to keep in mind that in order for you to succeed, you have a much better chance of succeeding if you find allies early on, people who are also interested in, in the technology that you're trying to promote, even if they don't straight away get going to have the chance to work on it. So in my case, I have managers who are very supportive of me trying going away and trying out new ideas and co-workers who are interested in learning, but they didn't have the chance to straight away dive into using F-sharp for things. And even when they did, they, they had struggles. And uh, so is sent down to you as the person to help guide your team through it and to help them get over the initial hurdle. And as the go-to person, it's also then down to you to be the bridge between your team to the rest of the community to find out what's happening in the community, what's the leading practices around how to solve problems, how to apply, say, uh, DDD techniques in F-sharp. And what are some of the leading practices or or tools that people are using? So, for example, in the F-sharp space, Fake became very prominent as the tool for doing automation scripts and trying to find out how they're going to fit into your stack with the way that your team are working. And you mentioned the some of the initial mistakes that people are making. So it's also very common for uh, for newcomers into, say, F-sharp from C-sharp because of Paradigm Switch to initially be writing 
be basically writing C sharp code in F sharp syntax, uh, and maybe even producing a, a more abstraction than they need. And the thing I find with uh, providing abstraction is that in the sort of all space, objects are the smallest unit of modularity you have, but often you have things that are smaller than that. So for example, a simple function takes an integer and returns a boolean. That is a signature. That is a thing on its own, but you don't really have a, a good way to represent that in the row. So you either have to wrap those things around into an object so you've got an extra layer of abstraction that's really redundant whereas with a functional uh, with the sort of fp side of things uh, no abstractions is too small and uh, all this a lot of patterns that you find in the oo space can also just be represented using very simple uh, functions or high order functions and that's also something that initially a lot of the guys that work with struggle to sort of get their head around i guess it takes just practice and time and a lot of patience from you, the person who tried to promote this new paradigm, this new language onto the team to help people through those difficulties and to, to help maybe even do a pair programming to spend time with people as to let them make the mistakes, point it out and help them along or share articles, share talks so that when people have spare time, they can look at what's happening in the F-sharp space. And for personal development, I also find that going to conferences really, really helps because if you just learn so much about what other people are doing, what are the learning from the current uh, thought leaders and try to take different ideas on board and whilst try to make it work with your sort of internal model of how you view programming, because obviously everyone's got opinion. It's easy to get dominated by someone else's opinion, but you still need to be you know, steadfast and in your personal beliefs of how your experience and the context are teaching you, but at the same time, take on new ideas. And it's going to be the same with your team as well. Every team's got a certain way of working, and there will be lots of historical artifacts that comes with those experiences, and you have to find ways to sort of weave uh, these new ideas into the existing context hopefully gradually. So if you want to adopt a new language, maybe don't put it into the most critical part of your system straight away, but try out in a slightly low, uh, low risk. Until you have something in production that you need to support and run, then it's still hard to um, to get over that hurdle. So start putting things. So I'll say, even though tests and view automation, those are good places to sort of dip your toe into the water, you still want to get to the point where you have some F-sharp code running in production for less critical parts of your systems so that you have something in production running so that people can learn how to maintain it, how to improve it over time. And then that's how they can, they're going to get real confidence about running something in production, which is a completely different thing from using F-sharp for writing tests and view automation, which are uh, not in production and, and eventually just doesn't matter. And then you also mentioned at the, towards the beginning of the conversation that when you were working with some of the AWS stuff, I believe, that you were talking about F-sharp type providers. Can you give a rundown of type providers? And then also, do you wind up writing your own? Is that what I heard? Or can you elaborate on that a little bit? So type provider, so imagine that whilst in your student, your IDE, you can create a type that represents your S3 account. And that S3 type provider is something that I wrote myself because I needed it and there's, well, there's nothing else available. So imagine with my type provider, so I've got this mechanism going so that I can have a, inside IDE, I can create a type that represents my S3 account. And then when I say account dot, and then whilst I'm still in the IDE, the IDE will make a call to S3 to get to grab me all the buckets that I have in my account. And then based on the information that comes back, create types and properties on the fly so that in my IDE, after I press start, I will get a list of the buckets I have in my account listed as static properties of this type. And then when I select one of them and I press start again, then as part of the type, my type provider, the IDE will make a call through my type provider to S3 to list out the top level objects and folders I have in that particular bucket. And based on the data that comes back, generate static properties for the selected bucket so that I get IntelliSense for essentially my, 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 my account structure in S3 while still inside the IDE. And whenever my code is compiled, the same process also happens so that accidentally deleted one of the S3 files that my code depends on then I won't have to wait until runtime to find out. I will find out the next time I open up a solution or the next time I try to build it through my build automation tools. And yep, it was a type of that I wrote myself. 
um, which is not very hard today. The whole process is, is not particularly easy to debug and, and test. And the sort of programming model is it's not particularly nice, uh, but once you have something, it's actually really easy to use. And there are loads of type providers out there for uh, turning to CSV, XML files, to SQL databases, or you can you, you even have a type providers that can let you call into functions created in R or, or Python. So that if you're doing a lot of data uh, data science, so there's a girl in the F-sharp space called Evelina. She's Thomas Palachek's wife, and she does a lot of machine learning and data science stuff. And so she uses the R type provider a lot so that in, so you can use F-sharp, all the things that it's good for, for getting data in and out, to, for moving things around. And then by the way, you need to do statistics and do uh, calculations or plotting. You can still use R's functions, which are, there are many, many very good functions and very optimized functions for doing statistical analysis and for plotting as well. So one of the things that the Don sign would say is that there's reinventing the wheel that has been implemented in other languages a lot better. F-sharp's ethos is to use type providers to basically borrow the good work that other communities have done. And so this allows you to get types, have those types be erased and exist only at development time and not to incur the cost at runtime is the story I've heard. And as you said, pick out different data sources, whether it's your database or open schema or in your case, AWS. Can you give an overview of what that looks like to write one of these? Is this just yet another F-sharp script kind of thing that gets invoked or how does the 30,000 view look? You can have both erase types as well as generated types. A lot of the type of either you find, they will be erase types so that you can have millions and millions of types a runtime without blowing out of a CLR because it all just gets erased to the object type. But at the same time, it means that you can't reuse those types that you have created. So you also have type providers that can have the option to give you generated types so that you can have, say, for example, instead of creating by hand a REST client for every API, you can just point it to some API documentation and then also generate the client and have the type that's been generated that represents your REST API, have that be something that's generated and then you can package up and sort of distribute as a NuGet package. In terms of the process of creating your own type providers, there's a guy called Michael Newton who has written a couple of blog posts on type providers from the ground up. So essentially, it's there are two modules that is distributed as a NuGet package, and from that you can that give you the basic tools for creating a, a, a race type or a runtime type, and then uh, setting properties on those based on some external uh, information that you get back. But there's quite a number of limitations on what those types can be, and it's hard to describe it. Uh, it's probably easier if you go and read Michael's uh, blog post and. They also had some videos as well on YouTube, um, which I can share the links with afterwards. And yeah, we'll get those links in the show notes so people can actually check out and inspect and look at code to see what it actually looks like. So that'll work as well. So we're getting close to the end of time, but I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to bring up anything else we haven't talked about. We've covered quite a bit. We've mentioned a bunch of stuff in passing. Is there anything that you think we missed or we didn't go deep enough on before we move on towards wrapping up. But what have we left out? I guess we haven't touched on Elm, which I think is a very interesting language. Uh, I had a lot of fun playing around with Elm. Other than that, um, I guess we haven't touched on serverless architectures as well, but I don't know if it's, it's probably not in line with the theme of the podcast. I think serverless would be interesting at some point. I don't know that we got enough time to completely dig in and do a good dive today, but I guess we can talk about Elm because you mentioned a whole bunch of other languages you've been playing with, Elm being one of them, Scala at one point, Haskell at one point, you mentioned some of the, you cited Idris. What are some of those things that you found across those languages and what makes those different languages appeal to you and whatever else we haven't left out of things like Elm? So with Elm, Elm is interesting because I spent quite a bit of time with reactive extensions at various stages, the initial .name version and then the JavaScript version. And then Elm came along and it's basically what reactive extension would look like as a language. So Elm is built on top of the Haskell platform and it's a pure language and the host of FRP paradigm, the functional reactive paradigm was at its core. And what's interesting is that since then, it's actually moved on from that 
the latest version of ELM has done away with uh, signals or FRP altogether and moved to what is called the ELM architecture, which is you can think of it as a formalization of the sort of state machine and message-based approach that I think Redux also uses. And Elm has actually taken some very similar ideas from Erlang in terms of having something similar to like a gen server where you've got types that can represent the different states your system can be in as well as types that can represent the different triggers for how you transition from one state to the next so that you can very easily implement a kind of a state machine your view model and then you've got a render function that can take your model and then renders it and basically translates it into a view or potentially into something else as well and with some of the other languages i mentioned i think i also mentioned idris so the background of idris is a dependent types so if you think with say generics you have a way to have a type that depends on some other type as a parameter so you can have a list of integers or uh, a list of cats being completely different things that and the compiler can tell you that hey you can't add a string to a list of integers with dependent types it takes it a step further and you can have basically a type that can depend on arbitrary value so for example an array of five integers can be encapsulated on as a whole as a type so an array of five integers is such a different type to an array of four integers so if you want to perform say some operations such as zip which requires two arrays of the same length that constraint can be captured and enforced by your type signature and that's uh, rather than is something that, that you have to implement and then check at runtime and then you have ROS, for example, has got this very interesting idea of borrow pointers, so that where most other languages try to push you towards not sharing at all, ROS is trying to push you towards a slightly different direction whereby you are allowed to share, but only in a safe way, so you can never have a databases in your code, and it, it enforces that by doing compile time checking and it also removes the need from you for you to sort of manage allocations and deallocation because as to when things go out of scope it gets uh, deallocated automatically and deterministically as well and so suppose a variable and whenever i create a binding to some uh, say a vector the binding has the ownership to underlying resource which is the memory that's allocated for this vector and whilst i can allow other piece of code to sort of borrow a reference to this resource you can only have one writer say at any moment in time or you can have many readers so that by doing compile time checks it makes sure that those constraints are enforced so that you can't have a case whereby, okay, there's some bug creeped in because I've got your typical concurrency bugs where a two processes is all trying to ask the same bit of data in memory. One is doing write and whilst another one is trying to read and then make decisions based on that. So Ross is able to uh, sort of remove that whole class of bugs by doing compile time checks. Another thing you get with F sharp is this feature called the unit of measure, which allows you to create types that represent some unit that you can then attach to say uh, integer or a float so that 42 pence is a different thing to uh, just 42 or 42 pounds so that if i've got a bit of function that's do some calculation and expects the input to be uh, integer that's measured in some unit if i accidentally call the function with a naked integer or, or integer with a different unit then I would get compile time error. So I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, but in the late 90s, the NASA um, sent a space probe, I think this was a Mars orbiter, but on the way to Mars, it actually crash landed into the moon because one of the engineers wrote a function that was expecting a flow to be passed in that's measured in miles, but one of the co-workers accidentally called the function with a flow that's measured in kilometers. So this kind of uh, human errors can be eliminated at compile time using features such as uh, unit of measure. And then find Go quite interesting. Well, I don't particularly like Go as a language, but one of the things that I find interesting about Go is that it's got this interfaces in Go are implemented implicitly, so you don't ever have to explicitly say, here's the interface and here's the type that implements that particular interface. If a type satisfies all the requirements for the interface, then it implicitly implements that interface, which I think is a very nice idea because it gives you the convenience of duct typing, but at the same time, you also get the static safety. So if, it's, if you've got a function that's expecting instance of some interface, any type that satisfies the constraints of that interface 
can be used without explicitly saying that they implement that particular interface. But at the same time, if you try to pass in anything that doesn't conform to the constraints of the interface, then you also get the compile time error. So give you the best of both worlds, really. What else did I mention? I spent a bit of time with Clojure as well. So even though I've come across macros in a number of languages, including Erlang and the Scala, but I think the macros you get in Clojure is the nicest I've seen. I know you've got macros in Elixir as well, which is, from what I've seen so far, is very really powerful. But working with macros in Clojure is just so much easier, so much nicer. Yeah, so those are some of the languages that I've sort of spent time with the last couple of years. And with Pascal, there's some really, really clever ideas, but the learning curve is also pretty steep. And some of the ideas, such as Monad, I don't know if the trade-offs in terms of safety versus programmer productivity, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the way you draw that line, because even though I like to have safety, but a lot of time, we I know as a programmer, know a lot more about my problem space than the compiler, and the, the amount of effort I need to go through to express everything that I know as a developer to the compiler, sometimes I find that's maybe a bit too much more effort than I would like to spend myself, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> I think it does. And I think you gave a good rundown of some of the other interesting things to look at languages. And that's one of the reasons that I like getting people on from a bunch of different languages is what are some of those ideas that are novel and that maybe we should think about and whether or not we can fold them in directly or indirectly based off language support, or at least know that's out there for future use. So I think that rundown of some of the stuff you found playing with all these languages just kind of helps reinforce my thought of trying to pick out which things are good for what problems and what principles are there that other languages advocate for and when we might be able to pull them in because those fundamentals should be transferable across a bunch of stuff, as you mentioned earlier, with the OO versus FP stuff. Yep, agreed. So we're getting at the end of our scheduled time. So I want to wrap up with is there anything that you're working on that you want to make sure people know about? Or I know you've done conference appearances in the past. Do you have any more coming up? Where can people come across you, if you, even if you aren't presenting and you're just attending? Or is there anything else that you want to let people know about and plug? I'm doing a least speak in Malmo. But really, I think well, everyone should be looking at the serverless technologies because having worked with them very closely the last couple of months, I have to say that the experience there is amazing. And again, the productivity gains you can get there is tremendous. And do you have a call to action for the audience? They've listened to you this episode. And is there anything you want them to take away from this episode? Learn F-sharp, use F-sharp. <laughs> that sounds like a good call to action. And where can people find you online and keep up to date with what's going on? Twitter, blog, what are the best ways that people can track you down? You can find me on Twitter. I'm not blogging as much as I'd like to because that work is really busy. But you can find me on theburningmonk.com or as at theburningmonk on Twitter as well. And I'll get those added to the show notes as well. Thank you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Yen, for taking your time to join me today. You gave a good broad swath of a bunch of stuff, and I think I'm going to have to listen to this even a couple more times after the pass for editing to be able to start pulling out a lot of the stuff that you just touched on and flew by that we didn't get a chance to dig into just because of time constraints. So so there might be another episode in the future with you where we can dive deeper onto this stuff and maybe dig into some of your experiences about the functional programming languages and combined with the serverless architecture as well. So as you keep learning, if there's more, feel free to hit me up. Let me know when you're ready to give a rundown of that kind of stuff, because I think there's probably something there from some of the other stuff I've seen around the community as well. So thanks again for taking your time, and it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.